This is Focal Point for the 6th of March 2008. We're talking about creating authority. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. You can subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave comments for us. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Padney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hi, Chris. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. Fantastic. So... In the last podcast two weeks ago, we talked about our, we've been talking about this whole idea of authority on the internet, and we we titled that one. It must be true. I saw it on the internet. And in the last podcast, we were talking about how you, as a consumer of information on the net, could evaluate what was um, what you what you found on there. And I and I really liked your idea, Chris. Just to recap, the idea of safety in numbers. So you look at things not just based on one opinion or one website, but you look at things in from a number of websites. Indeed. It's it's one of these emergent properties from from Web 2.0. Again, we're going on about the benefits of Web 2.0 and this architecture of participation. And one of the things that gets you is uh, on, on websites where there is a large community, is a large number of people um, scrutinizing information and as such, you get that safety in numbers effect. You get a lot of people who are looking at the info and able to uh, call up or call you up if there are any um, any uh, any misinformation or inaccuracies. Uh, yes. So in this week, what we thought we'd do is look at the other side of that. So if you're a publisher of information, if you're a producer of information, how do you create that authority without necessarily having to have a whole bunch of other people endorsing you? Are there other ways of doing that as well? Uh, is that a fair summary of what we're going to cover, Chris? Absolutely. Okay. And I guess I'll, I'll lead off with something, a quotation that I heard attributed to Ronald Reagan when he when he was president. He started a speech by saying, before I start speaking, I'd like to say something. And people laughed at him. People laughed at that. And yet, I think there's, there is some truth in that. And it's this, this concept of framing. Um, and it's a, it's a technical term that's applied to creating messages or delivering ideas. It's what you say before you get to your idea that sets the audiences or the readers or the listeners' frame of mind. And it's about creating their frame of mind so that they're ready to listen to your idea or to your message. I see. So how can, uh, if you're a publisher, how can you do that on, in an online context, Kihan? Well, I think that there are four parts to framing, and let's talk about one of them in this podcast. And the, it, it comes down to this. Whenever somebody is looking at some information and they're evaluating it, they're asking four questions about it. Why this? Why you? Why me? And why now? So why this is what are the benefits of this for me? Why you is why should I trust you as the person who's delivering that information? Why me is why is this information particularly relevant for me and not to other people in the world? And why now is why should I take action now? So we're talking about benefits, authority, fit, so fit for me, and urgency. And if we're talking about information on the Internet, let's look at specifically the why you. So why should they trust you? Um, and 
believe what you say, especially on the internet, when there's so much rubbish and garbage out there. And I guess it's, mm-hmm. I, I think it's fair to say, Chris, that it's probably become more true now with some of the Web 2.0 tools where anyone can publish a blog. Why should they trust you? Yes. So okay. I think if you if you look at that area of why you, so why should they trust you rather than anybody else? And I, I see this sometimes with some of my clients, Chris. Uh, a lot of my clients are speakers, trainers, consultants, and authors, and so they might write a book, and they publish the uh, they publish the book, and so they promote it on their website. So they they list the book on their website, and just hope that people who come across the site will buy the book. And their their main focus is trying to get more traffic to the site. So they talk to me about how do I get more, how do I get a top spot in Google? How do I get links from other people? How do I get um, ads in other people's newsletters. And their their main job is to try and get more and more people to their website. But they forget about the fact that even if they get a lot of traffic to their website, that somebody who's visiting who's never heard of them before is still asking the question, why you? Why should I buy from you? So if they're a motivational speaker, they'll be the, the real question is like why should I buy from you rather than from Anthony Robbins? Or, or somebody else like that. If you're a sales speaker, why should I buy from you rather than Tom Hopkins? Um, if you're an academic, why should I buy your um, idea? It doesn't even have to be something for sale. Why should I buy from you if you're not the world's recognised expert? And so that's really and that what did used to work, didn't it? Uh, that was the old, the old Web 1.0, if you like, way of doing things when when there wasn't so much information available or products available on the internet and and you had less competition. Yes. Getting to, getting to the top of Google was easier, and getting a lot of traffic did tend to work. That's right, because what would happen was that you just you just work by volume. So even though you'd have a very small conversion rate, in other words, you'd, you, out of a, a thousand people that visited your website, you might get one person who eventually bought from you. That was okay if you had lots, many, many thousands of people coming to your website. But even that was hard. Um, and there's been a big shift now in the way that the Internet views authority. And I believe it used to be that people came to your website to find out whether you're an authority. Now I think you have to prove you're an authority before they get to your website. Yeah. And in the last couple of years, things have shifted. So you, we've talked about this before, Chris. You had to publish a podcast before they come to your website. You publish a blog before they come to your website. You take part in online communities before they come to your website. So by the time they 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 get to they click on a link that says www.gihanperera.com, they will know that Gihan Pereira is an expert in his area. So, so I guess it comes up the question: How do you then create that authority? And um, we'll talk about some practical things and some of the things we've already covered in previous podcasts, Chris. But we can refer to them. Uh, but let me talk about uh, them under three broad categories. They are under the categories of authority, social proof, and rapport or liking. So actually, let's start with the rapport one because that's, that's an interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. People tend to believe what their friends and family and people that they've got some rapport with say more than they'll believe what some stranger will say. So that might, I mean, that might sound quite obvious, um, but it's uh, it's in two ways. So one is you can demonstrate rapport by if you're an expert and the other person's not, you can demonstrate rapport by showing that you understand them. 
So if you understand their problems, it doesn't mean you have to be like them, but you, it must be that uh, you understand their problems and their concerns and what's keeping them up at night. Um, and the other way is to say, I'm just like you. So if I can do it, you can do it too. Well, for example, like in, in the case of marketing on the internet, so you've you've got a an ebook that you that you sell on the internet about Siamese cats. That's right. Um, yeah. So, what makes you an authority on Siamese cats? So, why should people buy from you? Like, what have you got in there that makes you likable? Right. Okay. So, yes. So, in the sales letter, you mean, for example, that uh, yes. That uh, I go through a list of questions that uh, were provided to me by um, actual Siamese cat lovers who wanted to know different things about their cats. Exactly. So exactly that. So you prove that that first part of that, which is I understand you. You prove that you actually understand them because the words that you use in the sales letter are the words that Siamese cat lovers have actually given you, in um, and you've used the same words in their language. Um, in talking about the problems and the questions that they have about looking after their cat. Okay. So being able to speak their language is useful. And now that can become, uh, that can sometimes seem a bit fake. Like my sister Sam, who you know, is an English teacher, and she teaches her students that it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't mean that she speaks the language of teenagers, but she has to understand what language they speak. It doesn't mean that she has to try and copy them to be be like them, but she has to understand where they're coming from. One of my e-books that I wrote is about Sri Lankan cooking. And there I've got my mother who's a, who wrote the e-book, and she's had many, many years of experience, decades of experience in this area. So she's clearly an authority in that area. Um, and so people buy the book because on the, in the sales letter we talk about her authority. Uh, part of what we do in terms of the liking is that all the proceeds of that book, all the proceeds of the sales, go to a charity that she supports in Sri Lanka. So in the sales letter, we talk about the charity. We have a photograph of the kids, the orphan, the orphan kids who are helped by the charity, and that encourages people to buy as well because, again, it establishes that rapport and that liking. In fact, I remember another story about another sales letter, another e-book that was written. It was by, actually written by Ed Dale, who was one of the people who put put on this uh, Underachievers conference, which is where we both got the, the process for writing our e-books and selling them. He talked about one that he was helping one of his clients write. I think it was the one about um, weddings on a budget. I okay. think he wrote an e-book uh, about that, or he hadn't. One of his clients had an ebook written, and she created this sales letter and put it on the internet. And when they, f- after a couple of months, they were getting some, they were getting pretty decent sales. After a couple of months, they noticed that there were some typos in the sales letter. So, um, the, up until that time, they hadn't worried about it too much because they were getting pretty decent sales. But then they were looking at ways to improve their sales, and they noticed some typos and grammatical errors. So they changed that. So they improved the sales letter and they found that their sales went down rather than up. Really? That's astonishing. Yes. yes. And so their theory and we just like we just never know why people buy or why they don't buy, but their their theory was that the typos and the grammatical errors made it seem like it was written by somebody who was just an ordinary mum who was just like the sort of people who were going to be buying that product. 
Wow, so that, that, that can be a fine line to, to balance, can't it? Because on the it, other it hand, is. it can also convey a sense of unprofessionalism as well. Exactly, and I think this comes back to your market. So there's some research done at Stanford University about five years ago about what makes websites credible. And one of the top ten things that came up that decreases credibility is if you've got errors on your websites, if you've got typos, right. if there's spelling errors, grammatical errors, it actually reduces your credibility. Um, but you know, Ed found that in this one particular instance, fixing those errors maybe meant maybe increase the gap between the seller and the buyer, and the buyer felt more comfortable buying from somebody who had a website that wasn't full of hype, but in fact went as far as even having some spelling errors and typing errors in it. Right. Not that we're recommending that, are we? That's right. Do some split testing with uh, typos. That's right. So we're recommending that if you're an expert, if you're an authority, you should do the opposite. You should increase your credibility by making sure that whatever you produce looks professional. Sure, yeah. And I think the other thing about this reporting, Chris, is that sometimes it takes time to create rapport. It's not just a one-off thing. So we're talking about people coming to a website just by clicking on a Google ad, but most of the people who do that are coming to your website for the first time. I mean, almost by definition, the fact that they've searched Google means that they're searching for information they don't know about you already and you just happen to be the first click that they that they click on. Um, but in general, you will generally have to create a, create a relationship with people beforehand using some of the tools we've talked about. So we're doing this right now with our podcast, which we've been running for, oh, I must be close to a year now, Chris. I think it is, yeah. We're, we're approaching a year. And people who have been listening to it from the start will get some sort will understand, they'll have some sort of relationship with us, even though it might seem like a passive one because there's no chance for them to interact with us during the podcast, they still get to know us. They hear your voice, they hear my voice, they have some idea of our style, about the sort of content that we provide, about the formality or informality of how we run this. And if they eventually come to buy something from us, and even if it's just an idea, so if they come to believe one of our ideas in a future podcast, part of it will be because of the history that we've built up and the relationship and the trust that we've built because of that history. Yeah, they have that context, don't they? Whereas the old-fashioned Google Ad Plus sales letter, it's, as you say, they're coming to a cold, there is no context, and so the chance to establish rapport is much more difficult. Yes, and as you said, that used to work. And it still does to some extent, and we're certainly not saying get rid of Google. <laughs> yes, I'm still selling selling uh, copies of that ebook, so it does work. But um, yes, not to the degree that um, other techniques will work. That's right, and you know I've, I've, we're still selling some of the Sri Lankan cooking ebooks as well. But I have noticed that those sales have gone down, and I haven't yet invested the time and the focus in in looking at that. But when I do, what I'll do is not look at improving the Google ads or improving the sales letter, it will be doing some of these Web 2.0 things to get exposure to the site before people come to it. So, for example, I might get my mum to write a couple of little articles about how to put together a little menu, or we'll take some of the recipes from the ebook and publish them on some online recipe forums. When you're participating in forums in that fashion, Kihan, is there are there any guidelines that you like to use that um, 
that improve your chances of establishing that rapport, creating that context, rather than just going in there and, and dumping, say, a sales letter on a bulletin board or something like that? How do you how do you participate in a in a constructive fashion? Yes, that's a good question. And I think the simple answer is to answer questions first. Actually, that's right. not right. Answer questions second. The first thing you do okay. is what what we used to call lurking. So it sounds sinister, right. but all it, all it means is yes. join the forum and read. Just read. Don't necessarily participate actively initially. Just get an idea of how the forum runs. You'll notice in most forums there's a few people who participate regularly, and most people don't. Um, so start off by just lurking, by just watching, just noticing the way that people interact, the, the tone of what's accepted and what's not. Um, and then when you decide to participate, which you should do, because forums require participants, otherwise they don't work if everyone's a lurker. But when you participate, answer questions. So find right. a question that somebody's that somebody's got on there, which you have got some expertise in, and write an answer. Um, it doesn't have to be a long answer, but you don't have. But you shouldn't hold back either. So it shouldn't be saying, um, "Here's a quick answer to this, and by the way, buy my book, and I'll give you the rest of the answer." Right. Um, contribute by giving a complete enough answer for people to go away and take action themselves. It may not be as much action as they can take if they start paying you money, for example, but it's still enough for them to go away and do something themselves if they choose to. Okay. So the, the, thing, that you, the thing that you mentioned about sales letters, I think just never put a sales letter in a forum. Use, use the forum to demonstrate your authority and your credibility uh, and at the end of it, you can have a link to your website, and that should be enough for people to go to your website and and find out more about you. I've seen some people on forums; they they even t you can write little signatures. So every time you contribute, it puts a standard bit of text at the bottom of every message. I'm sure you've seen that, Chris. We've been doing that for 20 years yes, yeah. on forums. I've done that. Um, yep. Yeah, and like some people try to make that a very very markety, a little bit more hypey than what they would normally do in answering the in answering question on the forum. And I, I just think that's unnecessary. If they're not if they don't recognise you as an authority by the time they get to your signature, then they're not going to anyway. Right. So spend your time and your effort in in answering questions in your area of expertise, whatever that happens to be. And how do you discover the the forums where that's going to be um most beneficial. I guess you subscribe to a few and lurk for a while, or absolutely. I think that's the way to do it. So uh, when I started doing this, I started looking at my my target market. So there, there are two types of forums in which to contribute as well, Chris. We should make this clear. One is forums of your colleagues, and the second is forums of your clients. Uh -huh. So participate in forums of your colleagues, so your professional colleagues who are, you're not going to get business from them, but you might get referrals from them, you might be able to do joint ventures with them, and you'll simply learn from them as well. So find out where they hang out, and then find out where your clients hang out, and where your clients hang out is where they're going to see you as an expert that they might be willing to pay money for. So to come back to your question, how do you find them? Yes, just search for them. So when I was looking, I'm in a kind of unusual position because my um, colleagues and clients are kind of the same industry. So professional mm -hmm. speakers, so I do speaking and training and workshops and seminars and tele-seminars. Uh, so I belong to that industry as well as in my website business and my consulting business, I consult to that industry as well. 
So for me, it's a little bit easier because the, the, the forums tend to be exactly the same. For most people, it's not. You have to find two different groups of forums to, to participate in. Okay. Um, so go to Google and just look for it. So I just, looked, I just typed in Professional Speakers Forum, and I found one really good forum of professional speakers. I just hung around for a couple of weeks, and then I started participating. Um, go to Facebook. If you've got a Facebook account, again, just search. That Facebook calls them groups. So go to the group yeah. section and type in the, the keywords that you're interested in, like professional speakers or leadership, customer service, uh, natural therapies, whatever it is that your, your area of expertise is. Um, and you'll find forums there that you can then that you can then look for a while and then start participating. Okay, but the other thing is this whole idea of expertise. Like when they come to your website, how do they know that you're an expert? And we talked about this last time, Chris, that it's very easy now to, to fake your expertise. You can go to thunderwoodcollege.com and get a PhD in anything in 10 seconds. I should get another one. <laughs> yes, you should. You should get a second one which is um, slightly less credible than the actual PhD that you have from the University of Western Australia. Slightly, that's right. That's right. However, you know, the fact is, like, if you've got that credibility, like if you've got that qualification, which you do, Chris, and I have an honours degree from the University of Western Australia, and if that's relevant, then you shouldn't be afraid, or you shouldn't be shy, you shouldn't be modest about promoting that um, if it's relevant. If it's relevant to to the expertise that you are talking about or the ideas you're delivering, by all means. Um, in fact, you should talk about your qualifications. So the other side of that is what if you don't have formal qualifications? How do you demonstrate your expertise? Well, generally, it's through your experience. So either experience of you having done it yourself or you having helped other people do it. Um, and again, like part of that is how long you've been doing it for. Um, so you see lots, lots of wealth creation experts who will say um, anyone can do it because I've done it myself. And if I can do it, anyone can. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it does. it is one thing that people will use to judge you by. Okay. Now, do uh, testimonials fit in? Sorry, go on. Yeah, see, see the, the thing with testimonials is testimonials is, is, is a thing about saying people just like you have done this same thing. Okay, so right. if you're an expert and you're seen as somebody who's maybe at a higher level than the people who you're trying to convince and persuade by your ideas or to buy your products, then you can't use the, hey, I'm just like you, therefore you can do it too. In fact, you don't want to. You want to use the authority card that says, hey, I'm an expert and you're not, therefore you should listen to me. But you should still use testimonials as well because testimonials say, hey, people just like you have to have had this success. See, for me, Chris, testimonials from other clients or other people who've listened to these ideas, taken action, they're more valuable to me than somebody who's necessarily done it themselves. Because if they've done it themselves, that, that proves that they can do it and that it can be done. It doesn't necessarily prove that they're able to help somebody else do it or help sure. me do it. Where somebody who has helped people like me, um, I've, I've, I believe there's a better chance that they'll be able to help me as well. Not everyone's like me, so you should do both. You should have okay. your, your authority as an expert, if you are in that position, as well as testimonials, case studies, stories, examples um, from other people you've worked with. 
And nowadays, and this is again coming back to some of this Web 2.0 tools, Chris, it's easy to create video testimonials or audio testimonials. So you can get a, you know, even a mobile phone. You take a little video clip on your mobile phone of somebody saying what a great person you are and what a great job you've done for them, upload it to YouTube, and then embed that video onto your website. There you've got an instant video testimonial without having to know much about technology. Um, and that is one of the things that's worth doing. So if you're using tools like YouTube and you're doing something that's promotional, um, if it's too promotional, then no one's even going to watch it. So it's not even worth doing. But if you have some interesting piece of content which proves, which teaches people something, that proves that you're an authority, and then you end by promoting yourself, one thing you can do is tack on the end of it a video testimonial from, from a happy client. Okay. Does uh, Wikipedia fit into the picture in this? Um, I'm interested in this because you use Wikipedia a lot more than I do. So I'm just interested in, in what context you mean. Well, for ex for example, going returning to the, the Siamese Cats book, there's a Siamese Cats page on Wikipedia, obviously, and I thought that one way of demonstrating some expertise would be to contribute some information to the Wikipedia entry on Siamese Cats and also cite the I Am Siamese book um, to, as a, a reference to the information that, was, that I added to that page. So that seemed like a, a way of, of demonstrating expertise as well as um, raising the profile of the e-book itself. Yes. Now, I'm interested, in, particularly interested in just following through this a little bit because I know we had this conversation offline some time ago, actually, about what constitutes contribution and when does it cross over the line and become wiki spam? Yes, I was very conscious of that, Gihan. So I made sure that the, the content that I provided was, was purely um, content about Siamese cats. It wasn't, um, it, it wasn't just spam saying, for instance, on, on the Thomas Friedman page, we mentioned this, I think, last week, where mm. there was someone in all caps typing, visit this website, it'll change your life. I was conscious of that because, as, as we pointed out then, that um, there are so many people visiting these pages that anything that stepped over the line would be quickly erased, and so any effort uh, along those lines would have been a waste. And so I think I, I, I judged it correctly because that content is still there. At least the last time I checked, it was still there. And it is. It's just information about the history of Siamese cats and some of their behavior patterns that uh, is also material in the book. And so... It's also important to be able to support any information that you enter into a wiki page with some references, and so the references were to the I Am Siamese ebook. Yes, and I, I guess one of the things that we've said over and over again about Wikipedia is that because it's policed by the community itself, it's quite a, it's it takes care of itself, doesn't it? So you don't have That's to make right. a submission to somebody and that says, hey, this is not commercial, I'm, doing, I'm providing enough content, therefore you should allow it. It's Over time, the community will decide whether it's going to be allowed or not. Yeah. Yep. I've heard that some universities now um, will not allow students to quote Wikipedia as the, in their bibliographies. So, you know, it's quite common now for students to be quoting in their bibliographies not just printed journals and printed articles, but they'll quote online sources as well. But some universities are, block, are, are not allowing them to quote Wikipedia as a reputable source simply because a student could create the page themselves and then so, uh, cite it as a source. Okay, right. 
So there's a there are pros and cons to Wikipedia. You know, it's like the thing about um, a lot of my clients have said in the past that writing a book has given them instant credibility, even if it's a self-published book and they, they did everything. It didn't go through an editing process, it didn't go through a proofreading process, but the fact that they're a published author has given them instant credibility. And yeah, that's still true. Absolutely, and that's still true to some extent, but it's becoming less true because it's just so easy now to write and publish books. Like anyone can do it. Okay. Like literally anyone can do it. So there's a website called lulu.com, L-U-L-U, dot com, which will allow, which which is which does printed book publishing, but you just work completely online. So you submit your content to them, and you set up. Uh, I think you've done something similar, Chris, with Cafe Press. That's right. Cafe Press allows they, you to do the same sort of thing as Lulu. That's right. Yeah, where they say, well, with Cafe Press, you put slogans on coffee mugs, for example, and then yeah. you can buy the coffee mugs through Cafe Press, and you get most of the money and they get a commission. And it, it's like production on demand. And so Lulu is the same idea. It's print on demand, um, completely online. Yeah, so, and also Cafe Press do the print on demand as well. They do printing of books and handbooks and calendars and so forth as well. Right, okay. So that idea of being a published author and having a printed book in your hand as, as credibility is, is they're still there, but it's diminished credibility as uh, compared sure. to the way it used to be before. Because I guess so before people... Being, sorry, go on. Sorry, so too being the, the originator of a, of a Wikipedia page is uh, equally diminished. That's right, whereas even a few years ago, creating your own website because fewer people were able to do it creating a website and having an opinion was it took a little bit of effort if not money even to do that so the people who were doing it were kind of serious about it I mean there were always the people who learned HTML themselves and learned how to create their own web pages but if you're an expert and you had stuff on the web that was taking an opinion, it was generally because you were serious about it, you put some time into it, you put some effort into it, and you you made some sort of investment. But now anyone can publish a blog free um, by using blogger.com. Yeah. So I guess as we come to the end of our time, Chris, I think if I was to just summarize it and, and just give you some tips on... Um, how to how to actually use this because we've covered a lot of information here. I'd say the first question to ask is why should they believe you rather than the world's expert on this topic? And if you happen to be the world's expert on this topic, great. Then you don't have, you don't have to ask that question. And there are, there are a number of ways to answer that question, but think about it in those three areas. So what rapport do you have with them? What relationship do you have with them? And if you don't have enough of one, build one. What social proof can you offer for people that you have worked with who are just like the sort of people you're trying to persuade? And what expertise do you have that perhaps that other person doesn't have? So you might be not the world's expert, but you're Australia's expert, and therefore people are willing to listen to somebody with Australian knowledge. Or you might be not the world's expert on sales, but you might be the world's expert on sales in the pharmaceutical industry and therefore you've got something that's different. So if you look at those three things, rapport, social proof, and expertise, that's a way to create authority in your field. Great. So in two weeks' time, we'll come back with a new topic. So thanks again for your time, Chris. We'll speak soon. Thank you, Gihan. Okay, bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. 
You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time. Thank you.